What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The race for House Speaker, well, still going. Democrat Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. We love democracy so much that I'm voting for Speaker for a 17th time today. Plus, Congress trying to keep competition from China at bay, starting with a hard look at venture capital. Republican Mike Gallagher. What is that center of gravity on which we can build a lasting China policy that will ultimately be successful in the short term in preventing a war with China and successful in the long term in winning this technological and economic competition with China? And private equity investor Glenn Hutchins on the market risk from a war in the Middle East. The big issue out there today is can we forge this alliance that reorders the Middle East in a way that can create peace and prosperity for everybody involved, including the Palestinians. All that today and much more. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Steve Leisman and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are both off today. Gentlemen, welcome. Great morning to have both of you here because we've got some serious stuff to talk about with markets, with earnings, and with what we can expect from Jay Powell, the Fed chairman who's going to be speaking a little bit later today. Yeah, I think the market is going to be listening closely. I'm not sure it's going to get the guidance that it craves. I think the, the story is going to be that uh, the market is providing Powell with the ability to wait. If you look at the structure of the Fed probabilities and the short-term rates, and I think he's going to take it because I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there with the strong economic data, mm-hmm. but that kind of comes up against the weak anecdotes that we keep hearing about the economy. The Beige Book yesterday did not sound like a robust growing economy, mm-hmm. but Atlanta Fed GDP now 5.4%. I don't know what you guys are all hearing from the companies and everything, but um, it's not robust news. And the question becomes not so much the strong third quarter. I think that's dialed in. The question is the fourth quarter. The Fed wants and needs a slowdown in order to feel comfortable about inflation. And it wants to know if it's going to get it. So I don't know if we have those probabilities available, but it yeah. may be useful. Take a look at, I think, two things. The first is the 10-year note, which is darn close to 5%. 498 I saw was the top uh, sometime overnight. It's now down a little bit. That's one. And then the second are the probabilities which show. Real quickly, I'll give you the probabilities on a 5.7% for November. Then it jumps up to about 39% for December. And then it's 48, 47 for January. Look, if you hear from the companies, though, Mike, I'd say most of the CEOs say that they are concerned about what's coming, but they all think that their businesses are doing pretty well and that consumers, for the most part, are hanging in there. Generally, that's true. And generally, even if you get a slowdown, it doesn't usually happen precipitously on a one-quarter basis. So uh, I think the market wants the ability to try and start to focus fully on companies and on exactly how uh, the business is going. And, you know, Steve, we're sitting here. It's going to be 25 basis points in December. Is it January? Is it not? Well, the 10-year yield since, like, 
the beginning of August is up a full percentage point. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it shows you where the market's real focus is. And, um, and you know, there's a, there's a way to tell the story that 5% of the 10-year is just recession risk coming out of the market. There's a little bit of a psychology around the supply. And, you know, it's almost a belated acknowledgement of what the Fed's message has been for a very long time, which is higher for longer. The question is, can the economy handle it? Are investors comfortable putting uh, higher valuations on stocks? Now? Yeah, betting for the future yeah. with some of that. Can list. I interrupt? When this whole thing yeah. started, I want to say... Three months ago or two months ago, I called the guy who manages billions. He told me 5% was his trigger to maybe come in and buy. Can I tell on you the that long end. Lee, yeah. Lee I Cooperman haven't talked to him since then. Lee Cooperman said just last week, told us at one of the events that we were doing, that he would not buy the 10 year, like 5, 5.5%. He wouldn't even be touching it then. He thinks wouldn't it's touch go it. considerably higher. My least favorite would be long term bonds. I don't think bonds with a long duration make any sense given what's going on in the world, you know, and uh, I think interest rates will likely go higher. And when interest rates go higher, bond prices drop. And I would not be a buyer of bonds until we got to over 5 percent. At some point, Mike, I think that there's there's going to be some desire to take duration. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And a lot of things can be true. I mean, value can be building on the long end of the curve and you're getting higher real rates and you're getting compensated for the risk at this point a little bit more than you were before. Uh, But it could still go higher, uh, you know, because it has some momentum to it. But also it it can kind of create these doubts as to whether we can withstand it. I think that to me is the is the main thing going on right now. Can the real economy deal with 8% 8% mortgage rates where they've been 7 plus. And the transports would tell you no if you watch what happened with the yeah. transports with the with the Russell 2000 yesterday. Yesterday, exactly. Yeah. Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Russell 2000 is up 3%. <laughs> right. So we have to figure out exactly you what know, we have how that, to figure out is what kind of decline in yields yeah. do you need to make the risk worthy of coming in at 5? In other words, you would come in at 5 not for the 5 because right. you could get that in the 2 or the 1 or the 6, right? But you, you can would almost come get into that the, in a savings account or in a, in a money right, market. In a money market, right. You would come into the five because you think it's going to four and a half. You think, and you would a, make you think that, it's asymmetrical, that it's more right. likely to go to four and a half than five and a half. Right, exactly. That's the idea. And so we'll see if that. By the way, stock market at, at the same level, yet, you know, basically where it closed yesterday, as it was September 22nd. I just looked at this. And the 10 year was under four and a half. My point mm-hmm. is, it's not an intricate, precise yeah. relationship where there's one level of the SP that corresponds. To a level of, of treasury. So we know that. One discussion out there, and I credit Bob Pisani with this idea, is stocks have held up remarkably well given the rise in yields. And that you would think that given what's happened and the competition yeah. from the bond market, stocks could be, and I don't want to say should be, but could be down a whole lot more. But they're not. And he credits the earnings with that, that actually underneath the surface, yeah. even though there haven't been any sort of big marquee, I guess we're going to get to that in yeah. a second, marquee blowout earnings numbers, they've been good enough to keep the market higher. But people higher. do have a lot more so cash is, on hand. That is true. That people have more cash on hand. Morgan Stanley, that was part of the problem. 23% of assets under management for their wealth management is yes. now cash. That's up 5%. Well, it's part of the problem for Morgan Stanley to a degree. Uh, the Goldman's, the Merrill Lynch Global Fund Manager Survey said they're taking relatively less risk than they normally do. But that's also potential buying down the road. In other words, people are not over their skis at this point. We, we talked right through your read, and they made it my read. 
Becky, so I owe you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, President Biden will deliver a foreign policy speech tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time from the Oval Office, addressing the U.S. response to the Hamas attacks against Israel and Russia's war in Ukraine. The president returned home from Tel Aviv last night after pledging support for Israel. Let's get the latest on the ground in Israel. NBC's Jay Gray joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hey there. Good morning. Yeah, and the response here in Tel Aviv, the front page of a uh, newspaper here says Biden dictates rules of the game. So they are are taking seriously the president's short visit here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what he feels like he accomplished, what we will likely hear at least partially uh, this evening. Uh, Israel and Egypt, just after the president left and after he pushed very adamantly for this, uh, decided they would allow humanitarian aid into the uh, two million or so people caught in the middle of this fight in Gaza. That will likely begin tomorrow. What's happened right now along the Rafah border crossing with Egypt is the uh, is that uh, the roadways there have, have been damaged during bombing runs uh, by Israeli troops. So they're repairing those and then expect the, the first uh, convoy of 20 trucks with food, water and medicine to move in the first time in two weeks uh, that they have done that. We don't have any indication of the duration of uh, how long this may last. Uh, we know that the U.S., uh, the president says, will commit $100 million to aid uh, for those in that region. There is another issue that is boiling on the other end of this fight, and it's the possibility of expansion of the military action. There is a growing concern about the border with Lebanon and what has been, and I'm, I'm quoting the IDF here, uh, significant escalations in skirmishes with Hezbollah along that border. We know this morning uh, anti-tank missiles were launched toward a kibbutz uh, near the security fence in that region, and the IDF has responded uh, with artillery fire. There have been stepped-up uh, troops and equipment moved into that region. The fighting has been growing significantly each and every day. And, and that's something that people are very concerned about, especially with the atmosphere on the ground. There's a lot of frustration over the explosion at that hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds. We expect more protests over the weekend. And so this is a, a hot box that a lot of people globally are paying close attention to. Jay, thank you very much. Again, that is NBC's Jay Gray on the uh, escalating concerns in the Middle East, and we will uh, make sure we keep track with him along the way. Cheese will be next. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, how Congress is trying to curb the money and the technology flowing from the U.S. to China through venture capital. The two congressmen running the bipartisan China Select Committee, Democrat Raja Krishnamurthy. Although it might be a step in the right direction to spin off this Sequoia China entity, are the underlying investors the same? And his colleague on the project, Republican Mike Gallagher, on China and on the 17th vote for speaker set for later today. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to lie. It is, uh, it is a mess right now. All that right after this break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Today with Becky Quick, Steve Leisman, and Mike Santoli. Here's Steve. Our next guests have sent a letter to VC firm Sequoia asking for a list of their tech investments in China. The letter is part of a broader effort to curb U.S. investments in the country. Let's bring in Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. He chairs the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois who serves as the committee's ranking member. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Let me start with the uh, chairman here. Um, What has been the response from Sequoia at this point? Well, we have yet to get a formal response, but we're hoping that they will participate in good faith and that we can have an open and honest conversation. What we're trying to do is gather information that will inform the legislative process. Raja and I both agree that American firms should not be capitalizing Chinese military companies, Chinese surveillance companies and the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses. Uh, Sequoia has a history of investing in in companies that do that, like Eversec, uh, Four Paradigm, DJI, Deep Glint. And so we want to understand how this new split between Sequoia U.S. and Sequoia Capital China, or Hongsham, what this means, whether it will actually prevent American capital from flowing to such Chinese military companies, or whether it will actually unintentionally or intentionally Uh, allow Sequoia Capital China to avoid scrutiny from the new executive order from the Biden administration. Yeah, Congressman Krishnamurthy, would you uh, follow up on that? Is this split enough for you or do you need to hear more? And what kind of, uh, I guess, rails are you looking for or or walls between the two companies? Well, I think the underlying issue is this, which is I think Mike and I and our members on the committee are concerned about not just capital, but also technology and know-how and expertise flowing from the funds to these uh, PRC companies and these problematic sectors like AI, quantum, and high-tech semiconductors, which, by the way, are the subject of the Biden administration outbound restriction executive orders. Um, I think what we're concerned about is, although it might be a step in the right direction to spin off this uh, Sequoia China uh, entity, um, are the underlying investors the same? Um, Are the relationships going to be maintained such that expertise and know-how continues to flow from Americans to these Chinese entities? Those are some of the questions that we'll be asking. Congressman Gallagher, I I just wonder if you could talk about how much bipartisanship there, I mean, we got to I'm not mistaken, there's a Democrat and Republican standing right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, about six inches separating you right there. How much bipartisanship is there on this China issue regarding U.S. investment overseas? Well, we are uncomfortably close here, but I'll (laughs) I'll try to get through the interview. Uh, I think there's a lot of bipartisanship. Uh, Our committee has operated in a profoundly bipartisan manner for the last year. I think our members are very serious, that they want to work across the aisle, and the mandate we've been given from former Speaker McCarthy and the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, was to work in a bipartisan manner, not just to throw bombs at each other. That's not to say we agree on everything. We have principal disagreements, but we're trying to identify what is that center of gravity on which we can build a lasting China policy 
that will endure regardless of who's in the White House and then will ultimately be successful in the short term in preventing a war with China and successful in the long term in winning this technological and economic competition with China. Yeah, but Congressman Christopher, what is the danger here that we go overboard? We want, obviously, to protect national security. At the same time, America is about being open for business. And if we restrict our companies overseas too much, we lose the competition. I think that's exactly right. Some people talk about decoupling from China. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that we're going to be diversifying our supply chains. We're going to be de-risking whatever the word of the, of the moment is that signals that we don't want to have sole dependency on China. And we learned this the hard way during the pandemic. As you know, whether it was active pharmaceutical ingredients or personal protective equipment, or as we've now come to realize, critical minerals that are essential for um, EV uh, supply chains. Um, we can't be dependent solely on the PRC because we know that the Chinese Communist Party uses these dependencies as uh, leverage, as, as sources of coercion, and we can't have that. Can we take this bipartisanship a step further and get a speaker between you two guys? Uh, Congressman Gallagher, do you want to comment on what's going to happen today and with the speaker? Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to lie. It is, uh, it is a mess uh, right now. I sort of have this image in my mind of us as a, a local fire department, and we're getting all these alarms that fires are going off in various neighborhoods. And rather than just getting in the truck and putting out the fires, the fire in the Middle East, the fire in Eastern Europe, the heating up uh, across the Taiwan Strait, the fire at the southern border, we're arguing over who should drive the truck or who should, who should uh, sit in shotgun. Uh, we need to get our act together, select a speaker, because we have a lot of work that needs to get done in a very short period of time. So hopefully we can make progress on that front today. Who are you supporting as the driver of the truck? Well, I voted for Jim Jordan uh, in the last two rounds. I believe we need to abide by the rule in the caucus. When you have a narrow majority, you have to support whoever the majority of the caucus votes for. Otherwise, it's total chaos. So did you Jim support doesn't Steve, demonstrate, Steve Scalise as well? Exactly. I supported Scalise when he got the majority of the caucus. I supported Kevin McCarthy. But I think since the eight deposed Kevin McCarthy, it's kind of unleashed Pandora's box where nobody wants to abide by that rule. And you just can't have a workable majority when we got a four-seat difference between control of the House if you don't abide by that rule. Yeah, but your name was floated, Congressman Gallagher. You, you say you're not running. Why not? I have the job I want, which is uh, chairing this committee, working with my good friend Raja Krishnamurthy, and we have plenty of good candidates. And I think the important thing is that whoever the speaker's going to be, they got to treat it like a 14-month deployment. Ra you got to step up, do it, and then almost Raja, go away. Raja, are Democrats? After that. We we, we got to go. Raja, are Democrats ready to step up and back somebody from the other side? Potentially, I, I think that at this point uh, we're waiting to see whether. Uh, you know, we can have kind of a bipartisan coalition, a unity coalition that sidelines the extremists and makes sure that the people's interests are first. Yesterday I spoke to the uh, Peace for Hong Kong Foundation in the morning and I said, we love democracy so much that I'm voting for speaker for a 17th time today. And, uh, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, I hope that we can uh, take care of business because as the China Global Times, the CCP, propaganda organ said uh, this speakership mess um, unfortunately is being used against us as a sign of weakness in our democracy. So okay. we've got to take care of business. We have to go. Thank you both. Thank you for your bipartisanship. Thank you. Thank you.
Coming up, the Israel-Hamas war's impact on the markets, or lack thereof. Co-founder of Silver Lake and co-chair of Brookings, Glenn Hutchins joins us. That's based upon the assumption locally and for broader markets that the war will be short and contained. That's not the goal of Iran. Squawk Pod will be right back. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Becky, here. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Steve Leisman and Mike Santoli. It is day 13 of the Israel-Hamas war. President Biden returning to the U.S. after a short visit to Israel. White House officials say that he will be addressing the nation at 8 p.m. Eastern time tonight. Joining us right now on the conflict and the geopolitical and economic implications of it is North Island Chairman Glenn Hutchins. And Glenn, it's been a very long time since we've got to sit down with you. Um, The world has changed drastically over the last couple of weeks. It has not been really reflected in financial markets to this point. But what do you think about as a business leader what this is going to mean? So um, it's great to see you guys, especially you two. I guess uh, Andrew and Joe are doing a work from home today. the, uh, look, uh, there's a lot here that's in the Middle East that's personal for me, Becky. And I usually don't talk about personal stuff on TV. Um, one of my first memories is being uh, my life woken up before dawn and put on a plane to be evacuated from Cairo with my mother in 1967 when the war broke out. My father stayed through the war, basically held hostage at the American embassy. So that was one of my first memories. You grow up pretty quickly when you have that kind of experience. Right now, I don't want to go into too much detail, but we have three close family members, young men, who are in the IDF, one in active service, two called up in the reserves. They're, both, they're at arms defending their country today. Uh, and thirdly, um, CARE, the International Relief Organization, where I've been on the board, as you know, leader of the board for many, many years, uh, has been in uh, the Gaza Strip and uh, Palestine for 75 years, since 1948, working feverishly over the weekend to try to provide relief supplies, big victory, uh, we was able to deliver 6,000 crates, 30-some thousand liters of water, bottled water, to women and children sheltering the Gaza Strip, their only source of water. So I see so many different parts of this um, perspective. Uh, it's hard just to focus on markets and the economy, but let me just tell you about that for a minute if I can. Which is, so far, this war has had little impact on the markets. I think for, I've, I also have some investments in Israel, one venture capital fund that I've been talking to, so I have insights into their companies, too. Um, they are forging forward. They feel like after 9-11 for us, they'll be able to kind of rebuild and continue to go forward. So I feel pretty confident about them. Um, but the assum- that's based upon the assumption locally and for broader markets that this world will be short and contained. Uh, and um, that's not the goal of Iran, which wants to disrupt the new architecture of peace in the Middle East being forged between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States, and thrives on chaos and conflict. It's not the goal of Russia, Iran's ally, that wants to divert resources and resolve from, on the part of the United States from Ukraine to the Middle East. And it's, not, and it's also not particularly the, the objective of China, hmm. which is smarting under U.S. tech sanctions and eyeing Taiwan. So this is a very, very big global chessboard. 
um, and thwarting and containing this, which is vital to market performance, was the purpose of Biden's trip. That's exactly why uh, I'm going to be watching very carefully what he has to say tonight. The, only the United States has the reach and the resources to keep this thing contained. This is the time period when middle America's leadership is vital to the world, but also vital to the things your viewers care about, which is market performance and company performance. The, um, the president's meeting that was supposed to take place in Jordan with uh, the Jordanians, with the Palestinians, uh, with the Egyptian leaders um, didn't take place because of what happened. Does that make you concerned that the risk of really expanding this crisis is, is, is real and in, in, in the forefront? That would be a key concern, yeah. right? On the other hand, as you've, I think you've talked on this show the last couple of days, a bunch of people are taking off to, for Riyadh for the future investment conference that they're having there. I think it's extraordinarily important at this time for American business leaders to actually lean into that relationship. Are you going? No. Um, long, long, long ago planned not to go. But I think that the message that we can, regardless of all the other issues that are out there, the big issue out there today is can we forge this alliance that reorders the Middle East in a way that can create peace and prosperity for everybody involved, including the Palestinians. The Iranians want to disrupt that. The Saudi Arabians were working with Israel and the United States to try to create this new framework. And I think that's really, really important to, to, um, uh, to reinforce. I hope the American business leaders will do that while they're there. So this hasn't played out in the economy of the markets to date. Um, are there things that businesses and companies are doing to prepare accordingly? or? What happens? Where, where do you see this? I think it's, it's right now it's narrowly confined to Israel uh, and Israeli companies are trying are figuring out and they're kind of, I think, doing a pretty good job of it. The most light, most, the canary in the coal mine would usually be the oil markets. Mm -hmm. And they've been trading in a range that's kind of with nor, within normal volatility. I think there's not a sense at this point that is, if this thing could be contained uh, that, and it's relatively brief, um, that, and, peop, and cooler heads prevail. Uh, in terms of what the response here is, uh, that this doesn't have a major economic impact. I think Jay Powell's speech today is going to have a chance to have a better, bigger economic what's impact. He, what's than he going to say, Glenn? I don't know what he's going to say. I know what I'd ask him. Um, are, Go you, are you going? I'm going to be there. No, I, I cover it more effectively from not being there. I'll be there. <laughs> okay. I'll be there. So what, 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 what would I'll you ask the question, so, well, so here, here, The headline of my question would be 3.5 is greater than 2. Inflation, meaning, yes, right? Yeah, so Steve's smiling. Um, the, uh, we've gotten inflation down from roughly 5% to 3.5%, but that's a long way from two. But as Mike pointed out, the Fed itself doesn't think it's going to get there until 2025, oh, that would, Yeah, that would be my so view, So what's too. the question? Oh, no, so the, the, not the question. I think the thing on people's minds is going to be, uh, is he going to give any um, indication of a path to easing before he gets to something that looks like two? And I think the answer to that is no. As I've said to you in the past, I think that the next round of inflation is structural and much harder to get out. It's demographics, deglobalization, decarbonization, debt monetization, and now um, the, the uh, uh, incred incredible overperformance of the U.S. economy, we've all talked about here, plus this huge flow issue that you folks have been talking about, which is all the Treasury Stimulus, issues. too. Yeah, there, stimulus, there's a lot of stimulus that's still pouring stimulus, in. But, but the flow issue would be, what I'm referring to is the massive issuance of Treasury securities that are flooding the markets and also causing rates to stay up. So I think it's highly unlikely that, um, I don't, I'm, by the way, I'm not worried about a new a Fed increase in the next meeting or two. It might or might not happen. I don't think it's consequential. I think the 
markets in the age of forward guidance, the markets have done the Fed's work for it mm -hmm. already. So I'm not talking about, about what that. it means for you as an investor. Does five percent create a hurdle? I think I know you a little bit. I don't think you go to bed at night thinking I'm going to buy 10 years tomorrow morning. No, no. But you're, you're in it for returns that are long term. Five percent look silly, yeah. right? So here's what's happening. I was on this show probably a year or so ago, and I talked about how uh, during the bubble two years ago now, uh, how there was this reach for yield, mm -hmm. where natural buyers of treasuries were buying corporates, and corporate buyers were buying high yield, and high yield buyers were buying index equities, and index equities buyers were buying were picking stocks, and stock pickers were buying tech, and tech buyers were buying venture capital uh, growth, and then venture capital, <laughs> and then crypto, and they all went up the, right, they all had to reach up that chain for yield. And I think now they're, it's cascading downward as natural buyers come out of that. Uh, and um, the, these higher rates as part of that are putting pressure on companies and economic arrangements that as the higher rates persist for longer periods of time, and I think the base case of not a cut until 25 is actually makes, more, makes most sense to me. So if you imagine a year to 15 months from now of a grinding your way through the implications of these higher rates for a long period of time, it increasingly weakens economic arrangements that are based upon lower cost of security, lower cost of debt. Highly leveraged private equity companies. Yeah. Venture capital, you've talked a lot about the real estate, so I'm not gonna go into that. Venture capital companies <coughs> burning cash, right? Um, the, I think the, the, uh, the emerging markets will continue to be under enormous amount of pressure. Um, by the way, to go back to the venture and PE, there are securities that are based around CDOs, CLOs, that are based around buying those assets. There are shadow banks that have ex uh, loans extended to those companies. All those things I don't think are going to create any systemic risk, but they're going to bring back, in my view, distressed investing over the course of the coming year. I think the new opportunity is going to be something we haven't seen in many, many years, which is rescue financing for companies with In other words, a company issues. cannot roll over the debt, and the better course for the company is to be bought out either through bankruptcy or before bank. But you think there's plenty of private money that yeah, will do that, and it's yeah. not going to require the government to step in and do that's, that's right. I mean, for instance, they'll... Because they'll if you talk to the owners of some of those assets now, they're calling for relief from the government. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. I think the government relief we need is what was Joe Biden's trip to Israel, right? Um, so I don't think that's the case. But you know, I think we could even have some financings. Uh, the banking industry is very sound, silver lining, right? But some of these small regional banks might well need to raise capital. Mm -hmm. As an example, that would be the difference between having a bank failure and having the banks need to go to the markets. Imagine if Glenn came on and had actually thought through some of these issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Glenn, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Glenn Hutchins. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes, analysis, interviews from our TV show right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.